Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to start a new series this week titled um, Becoming Disciples. And so I, I want to just try to, uh, to, to look at what the requirement is for us as believers in Christ. What is the next step requirement? And so before we get into the message, I just wanted, wanted you to do something with me real quick, is that if you can remember a time in your life where you did something for the first time, like you went to a new job, or if you're someone who's younger watching this and you don't work, maybe the first time you went to a new school. So if you can just kind of go back in your, in, in your mind and your memory and just think about that for a second, what it was like to walk into <clears throat> excuse me, a brand new place. And I remember for me, when I started my corporate America job several years ago, I remember uh, the, the, the lady who hired me uh, brought me in and, and she showed me where the conference rooms were and she was trying to get a laptop ordered for me so I could do my work. And I had to leave a few minutes after I got there to go to the restroom and I totally got lost. It was this three-story building and I, I didn't know where to go and it, everything kind of looked the same and I had to call her and she had to come get me and walk, uh, walk me back to her desk so that I, I knew right where I was. So I'm, I'm not sure if you had that kind of an embarrassing moment for you when you went into a new school or a new job. But just think about that for a second and, and, and what it was like to try to figure out where the cafeteria was, where the, um, the break room was, where your desk or your cubicle was. <clears throat> so you've got your mental picture now. Okay, now I want you to, to not just remember what, um, what it was like to walk in there. Now I want you to remember with me how it felt. There was probably some uh, nerves and anxiety, but there was also a little bit of excitement about the unknown, just a little bit of exhilaration, a little bit of, oh man, is this going to work? Or I, I like this job, or I'm not sure if I do, or, and, and everyone's kind of being nice to you because it's your first couple days there at the job. And I, I'm sure you've, you've got that memory right now um, in your mind with me, right? <clears throat> so at that point, when everything is new, that is not really the time to make a decision about, oh, this is what this job is going to be like forever. Because everybody knows that at the beginning you have this nervous anxiety, you know, this, this excitement about, oh, this is going to be good. But once that kind of wears off, for some people it's, you know, the second day or maybe it's a few days later or maybe a week later, when that newness and that excitement kind of dies down, you start to realize what is expected of you on a day-to-day basis. You start to try to get into a groove and you start thinking about, oh, I have to get up at this certain time or I have to go to bed at this certain time and I, it takes me this long and this kind of traffic to, to get to school or to get to the bus stop or maybe to get to my job. <clears throat> and so at that point, after that newness is kind of, that new feeling and sense of newness kind of wears down, that is the point where we find out what the job or the school really is like. And because we start to feel um, and we start to experience the true expectations of where we are. Last week was Resurrection Sunday and we celebrated the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We, we actually sat here together during the live stream and prayed uh, prayers of thanksgiving to God 
um, with gratitude for the Bible, for the cross, and for the empty tomb. It is the most, uh, is the most um, uh, exciting, the, the biggest event, the most monumental uh, moment in human history with the resurrection because it allowed us to have our sins forgiven, to be reconciled with God, and we can go after we die and escape judgment and go to be with Him in heaven. But many times I run into believers and Christians who go, man, I got saved. And they think that's where it stops. I got saved and, okay, I'm a believer now, so I guess I'll go to church and maybe I'll do a couple things. I'll crack open the good book and find a couple do's and don'ts I need to do. I'll slip some money in the offering every once in a while, but that's it, right? I mean, I got saved. And I'm here to tell you today that that is not it. That is not the end. It's actually just the beginning. It's just the beginning. See, I grew up in church, and most of the time when we heard about the resurrection, people would kind of talk about the resurrection, and then they would jump all of this time to the next big event, which was the Holy Spirit being poured out in this room with all these people gathering, waiting for it to come, and waiting for Him as the Holy Spirit to come. But in between these two moments, there's something very pivotal that happens. There are some instructions that are given. There are some things that Jesus says in the middle after the resurrection is done. And now we're going on. The disciples are moving on. The, the resurrection has happened. And now there's some instructions for them going forward. You can imagine the, the disciples, their excitement. <clears throat> they just watched Jesus be crucified, buried, and now he rose again and he appeared to them. He appeared to them, and, and he just think about, oh my goodness, what, what is next? What's going to happen here? And there's a level of nervousness and excitement and exhilaration and worry, and what are we going to do now? And what's the plan going forward from this point? And then something happens that I think I tend to forget as someone who's been, in, uh, been raised in church and been in church for a long time. I tend to forget this. And as I was doing my study, it, it just reminded me and blew my mind, and I wanted to bring it to you today. So the first line in your notes, if you're following along in the notes with us, is this. After Jesus' resurrection, he began appearing to many people. We know that he appeared to Mary and Martha, and then he appeared to the disciples, <clears throat> but there were many more people he appeared to. And that next line is this. Jesus actually appeared to more than 500 people after, he, um, after the resurrection. He appeared to more than 500 people. How do we know this? Let's look at <clears throat> a scripture here, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. And this is uh, Paul the Apostle writing a letter, an encouragement and a, and a letter of direction to the church that's in the city of Corinth. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. <clears throat> I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was buried. Now it's talking about after the resurrection here, ready? He was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, 
just as scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have died. He was seen by James and later by all of the apostles. Now, I want to make a statement here that might seem kind of elementary, and it may be kind of a thing that you say, well, that's kind of a given, right? But it's something I want to draw our attention to because it's vital. And it's the next line there in your notes. It's this, Jesus appeared to many groups of people in many different locations and at different times. So he appeared to many groups of people at different locations and at different times. You may be kind of staring at me and going, okay, why did you need to point that out? Why is it so important? It kind of seems like it's not important. On the contrary, my friend, it's very important. Here's why. This is important because if Jesus had only appeared to one group of people in one location, one time, it could easily be dismissed as a single, false, religious experience. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Several years ago, I heard a story about a man who purchased a Bible, like the Bible that we have, a, a big Bible, and he started to make the claim that when he opened the Bible and set it down on the desk, oil used to start to pour and drip out of the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, West Texas, oil fields, you know, taking black gold Texas tea and putting it in the, in the barrels and selling it to processing plants so they can create fuel or gasoline. That's what I'm talking about. It was almost as like he was trying to portray the idea that this Bible, this book, somehow miraculously was producing anointing oil like olive oil. He began to tell his friends and family and, and, and about this quote-unquote miracle and about this stunning development that he had seen. And they, people began to come and take a look at this Bible. And sure enough, there was oil just dripping off of the pages. Many people would come and they would see this thing and they would just look at it. And just without even questioning anything, they would say, Oh my gosh, I've just witnessed a miracle and they would become emotional and think they had a quote-unquote religious experience. They think that they saw this miracle with their own eyes and it, it kind of bolstered their faith and kind of quieted temporarily some of their questions and some of their doubts. They actually took this Bible on a little tour around several cities and, and they would put the Bible on the desk and people would come and they were just so enamored with looking at this at this Bible that had oil dripping off of it. And one guy at the, one of the last cities said, man, I don't just want to look at it. I want to get my hands on it. And when he grabbed the Bible off of the desk, it knocked over a, a shield and revealed a bottle of oil with a tube in it and a pump and another little tube that was that was uh, woven up through the desk and drilled into the back of the spine of the Bible to drip oil out of it and turned out the entire thing was a hoax. 
There's another story that you may be familiar with of, of a, pic, a picture or a painting of Mary, the mother of Jesus, that cries. And I watched videos of people who went to, to see this and they were just so dry spiritually that they just wanted something to say that, man, I witnessed a miracle and they went there and it was it turned out that you know they were just overwhelmed by emotion and they would cry and they would think, man, I saw this miracle. Oh man, I seen this miracle that God's doing and it turned out that that too was also a fraud. Someone was behind it pushing little drops of water through the canvas to make it look like the painting was crying. <clears throat> These people who went and saw this before they knew it was a hoax were so desperate they, want, they saw what they wanted to see and it became this big emotional outburst in them and it became this quote-unquote religious experience to them. If Jesus had only appeared to those 500 people, let's just say this real quick. We know he didn't, but just, uh, just go with me on my illustration here. Let's just say he only appeared one time and this group of 500 people was meeting at a public location after he was crucified. They met three days later and they were, they were trying to decide, man, oh, what, what happened? Where is he? He said he's going to rise again. And someone, you know, they're comforting each other and people are talking about, you know, what is going on and what might be happening. And just someone looks up into the sky and sees a cloud and it passes in front of the sun momentarily. And there's this, it looks like there's this big ray of light behind this cloud. And someone goes, look. That looks like, an, the cloud kind of looks like an angel and there's beams of light around it. And then someone else shouts, oh my goodness, that's not an angel, that's the Lord. And all of these people looked at that cloud and they convinced themselves because they were desperate to believe. They were so desperate to find something, they convinced themselves of something that wasn't true. <clears throat> if Jesus had only appeared one time to one group of people in one location, it could have been dismissed as false, but that's not what Jesus did. We have historical records and records in the Bible that show this. Jesus is seen <clears throat> by groups of different sizes. He's seen outdoor in, outdoors in broad daylight. He's seen inside in closed buildings at evening times in rooms that are lit with candlelight. He's seen by a group as large as 500 as we just read in 1 Corinthians, and he's seen in groups as small as two, like that we read, from the, we read from the Gospels when Mary and Martha went to his graveside and found that the tomb was empty and the stone was rolled away. He ate fish with some disciples. He walked and talked with two of his followers who were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus after the crucifixion. He allowed some of his followers and disciples to put their fingers in the nail holes in his hands and wrists. And he, showed, excuse me, he shows the, the scarring of his body to other people. <clears throat> he showed himself in different locations at different times to different people over a, a sustained period of time. This is important. Because if you're someone who is a detective or you verify evidence or a forensic scientist, these are the types of things, not all of them, but these are some of the things that you would look for to corroborate a story. And with all of this evidence, we see that there is even more physical evidence because of these accounts and where Jesus appeared, more physical evidence of 
his resurrection, my friends, he is alive. And that is great news for us. So Jesus has risen from the dead. He has shown himself to, to all of these people, different groups of different sizes in different locations. He's appearing to some. He's showing his, his, his scarred body to others. He is actually explaining scripture to some people. He's talking to others. He is conversing with them. He is showing out and he is the proof that he has risen from the dead. After several, um, after several uh, days and a, a certain period of time, <clears throat> Jesus appears to his disciples again and says, Come to a mountain in Galilee. I want to talk to you. This would be the last time that the disciples physically spoke, and saw, uh, spoke to and saw Jesus on the earth. Because after this happened, Jesus ascended into heaven. Here he is, been giving his entire life, more than three years of devoted time to a dozen of his disciples. He's been preaching. He's been showing them the truth of the gospel. He's been showing them how he has fulfilled all of these Old Testament scriptures. He He has done miracles they have seen. He is talking to them about the truth of heaven and about his father. He has poured everything into these 12 while he has traveled abroad and done great miracles and spread the good news that Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. Now he wants to gather those same disciples together after his huge moment of resurrection and he wants to tell them something. It's the last thing he physically tells them so he's about to wrap up everything they've been through. He's about to summarize it. He's about to tell them this is um, everything we have done and everything that I have said has led to this particular moment. It's led to this moment right here. And what is he going to say in that moment? What is he going to say in this monumental uh, moment here after he is raised from the dead? The last thing he tells his disciples. We talked a couple weeks ago about how some of his disciples and followers were really expecting him to set up a kingdom, a physical kingdom here on earth. They thought he was going to to remove the the Roman oppression. They thought he was going to settle the score with all of the the nations that were surrounding Israel that that would attack and oppress them every once in a while. They thought he was going to be the actual Messiah and deliverer on earth so that they could kind of rise to the top. But Jesus takes this moment to do something different. It's the last thing he's saying, his last words. It's unbelievably important for them. And in that moment, he doesn't say, oh, here's the three keys to get wealth. He doesn't say, here's a treasure map, and if you'll just follow the steps, you'll get all of this riches, these earthly riches, silver and gold. He doesn't tell them, uh, following me gets you whatever you want. And so you just go out there and start telling, uh, saying out loud what you want, and it'll come to you. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't set them up as political or cultural leaders. He doesn't do any of that. He does something completely unexpected. What does Jesus say in this most pivotal moment? 
Let's look. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them still doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and in earth. Let's stop right there. We just talked about these guys are ready for this earthly kingdom. There's somebody in that group who's ready for that earthly kingdom. So they, he's talking about, I've got authority. And this is the spot where if he's preaching, they are his amen corner. Yes, right. Okay, you've got all authority in both heaven and in earth. Ooh, what is about to happen? He's about to not just have an earthly army. He's about to have a heavenly army come down here. He's going to set up something. What does he want us to do? Does he want us to go and uh, uh, tell the Roman leaders, hey, man, walk out of here because our king is coming to deliver us? Does he want us to stop paying taxes? I have personally been looking for that scripture for years, and I haven't found it. So that, that, that's not what he's saying, but he's, he's just ready. <clears throat> These people are ready. What are you going to say? And he says, I've got all authority in heaven and in earth. Therefore, oh, here it comes. The big thing that he wants them to do. It's after the moment is done. This is going to be their new reality, and they are waiting for it, okay? I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm sure there was somebody there who was perplexed or stunned that this moment, the last thing Jesus is about to tell us, he has all the power in heaven and earth and all the authority, and he wants us to do what? Not to start building him a throne or a temple or anything like that. No, no. He wants us to go and tell others about the good news of the gospel and make disciples who follow his instructions? This is the part that typically when we as church people read the resurrection and skip over all this to get to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we miss something vitally important, and it is where this series is going to be rooted for the next handful of weeks. Go and make disciples. Once we have been saved, once somebody has preached the gospel and we have surrendered our life to Christ and we have given our, we've submitted our will to him and we have asked him to forgive us of our sins and we have believed in him and we, <clears throat> we confess him and we repent, we turn from the ways that we're living and we chase him wholeheartedly. We turn from these fleshly evil desires and we go towards the things that he has lined out for us. That is what he's asking of us. Yes, we got saved. Yes, it is great. Yes, when you and I both gave our life to Christ and we became born again, the, the scripture is clear that the angels rejoice every single time someone comes to faith in Christ. But after that big moment, there is a reality for us as believers 
And that is this. We have to be becoming disciples. If we're going to be disciples, we first have to determine and define what is a disciple. Some people, you know, if you've been in church and you're a long time like me, you may have, you think that your discipleship is a couple of extra classes during a weeknight or maybe learning a couple of scriptures or joining a group of people who go out witnessing or go door to door and pray for people or something along those lines. But a disciple by definition, and it's the next line here in your notes, <clears throat> the original word in the Bible for disciple is methetis. This word means a learner, a pupil or student, or disciple. So during this time, Jesus, that Jesus is alive and he has, <clears throat> um, he has uh, died and buried and, re- and resurrected, during this time, time frame of this account uh, during history, the Jewish leaders are referred to as teachers or rabbis. You will find instances that some of Jesus' followers even address him as teacher or rabbi. And what these rabbis would do is they, everyone in, in, in Israel knew that the scripture, the Torah, what we would refer to as the Old Testament, that this was the basis of how they were supposed to live. But, much like today, some of these teachers, these rabbis, had a little different perspective on how they should fulfill some of the obligations that were in the Old Testament and in the Torah. And they would begin to teach other people, and they would develop followers. And one of the the statements that they would make is uh, a follower wanted to have the dust of the rabbi or the dust of the teacher on his cloak. And what did that mean? That meant <clears throat> that during that time when they were walking everywhere, they were, or they were riding you know, donkeys or horses to destinations they were going, that when they would move along these roads, dust would, would kick up from the ground and would get on their cloak. <clears throat> it was implying that they were super close. They were following so close to their teacher, their rabbi. A disciple is someone who learns, who is committed to continue to learning and growing. A disciple is a student of their teacher, student learning constantly about the ways of their particular rabbi. They are a follower of this man's teachings and they have become a disciple. So if we are going to be disciples, we're going to have to be learners. We're going to have to be students of of the commands of Jesus, of how God has instructed us as his children to live. We are going to have to follow the way he leads and become his disciple. Our goal here is not to become anybody else's disciple, but to be his. So today... I want to only talk about one point. We're going to get into several more points um, in the next several weeks and the next handful of weeks about some of the things that it means to become a disciple. But today, there's only one. There's only one because it is important. It's vital. 
It's something that we have to do and we have to uh, wrestle with and deal with as believers. And that is this. It's number one there on the bottom of your notes. It's our only point for today. Disciples of Christ take up their cross. They take up their cross. Let's read Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. You know, when I was a kid, I had no clue what this statement of take up your cross really meant. And we talked about it a little bit last week, but I just want to give you a quick um, uh, refresher of what it means. But before we do that, when I was a, a, a young guy, and I'm still a young guy, so yeah, I'm still young, but when I was a younger guy, <clears throat> um, uh, we, they would sing this song in the youth group and at the youth camps I would go to. And it was kind of like a, you know, kind of like an upbeat kind of song, and, it, and it's where I was most familiar with this saying of take up your cross. And so what I'm going to do is before we go on, I'm going to ask Brian to come back and he's going to come and he's going to sing that song. He's going to take, hopefully there are some people who are, you know, maybe closer to my age a little bit. And you're, you're not necessarily close to my age. You're closer than some people, but um, he knows this song and maybe it'll take you back uh, to some of your childhood as well. If you kind of had like a youth camp experience with it. So go ahead and sing that song for us. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Take up your cross Come on. every day. And don't be ashamed to say that you know Count his cost and take up your cross and follow him. Nice, very nice. <clears throat> yeah, if you're there, you can give a round of applause of where you are to Brian. We'll just give him a little golf clap here in the house. <clears throat> Thanks for doing that, Brian. It kind of takes me back a little bit. And uh, I grew up in a, you know, in, in a kind of a legalistic church in the Deep South. And how can I put this nicely? Um, the people I grew up with were rhythmically challenged, right? Like that song's kind of got like a little groove to it, you know? But all the people who were, where I was around were kind of like, you know, real stiff and trying to clap and it just didn't work very well. But <clears throat> the song still kind of gave me that little bit of vibe, right? Like I, I'm married into the Polynesian culture. My wife is beautiful, gorgeous, Samoan, um, island, you know, Pacific Islander. And I, so I'm married in, so I'm around all these people. So it rubbed off a little bit, but I still, you know, you know, I, I was one of those kids that wasn't allowed to go to the, the, the dances in school <clears throat> because, you know, it was a hyper-religious time. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to go dance with somebody because, especially not to the devil's music and somebody who wasn't my wife, right? So it would always just lead to terrible things. <clears throat> but, and, you know, when I wasn't allowed to go, I would just tell people who asked me, are you going to your prom or your, your, your homecoming dance? I'd say, no. Why? Well, my parents won't let me. Why? We, we, we don't dance. 
And that was true, but there's a, if I'm completely honest, I was a little bit relieved that I wasn't allowed to go <clears throat> because your boy can't dance. I, got, I don't have a whole lot of rhythm. I got a little bit, but it's rubbed off after the years. But man, we've kind of derailed up the message. Let me pull us back here really quick. So that whole statement of take up your cross and follow him, that was, I heard the scripture and I read the scripture, but as a young person, I didn't know what that meant. I might as well have been singing, I don't know what that means, but I'm following Jesus. <laughs> like that's, that, I might as well have been singing that because I had no clue what it meant to take up my cross. <clears throat> and because the melody was kind of light and boppy and kind of had a groove to it, the, the weight and the seriousness of it never really sunk into me. I never really <clears throat> took the initiative to dive in and to say, okay, what does that really mean? But last week we addressed it. See, in that time, anyone in Rome who was convicted of a crime and sentenced to death by crucifixion, the moment they picked up their cross and started going down to the point where they were going to be executed, the moment they picked up that cross, they lost all rights as a citizen. All of them. <clears throat> this, although this is not a very common phrase in today's lingo or in our culture today, <clears throat> there is no doubt that the disciples knew exactly what Jesus meant. They were not strangers to the culture. They were not strangers to the idea of crucifixion. <clears throat> At the very least, if they hadn't seen uh, hadn't seen one, they had, had at the very least heard about it, and it's highly likely they had already seen one before. They knew exactly <clears throat> what he was saying. And this one point today is what I want to bring all of this together and ask us a question. It may not be something that you can answer right away because it's going to take a level of honesty, not with me or with anybody here at the church or with Nina or Brian or Sammy or anybody <clears throat> that you know that attends RCC, you're going to have to be honest with the person that matters the most, number one, God, and number two, with yourself. And here's my question. <clears throat> Are we ready <clears throat> to give up our own way? Are we ready to give up our own desires? Are we ready to give up our right to live selfishly and follow what Jesus wants from us. Man, Matt, you kind of took a little turn there and things got a little heavy, got a little weighty, a little weighty right here for me. I mean, like, am I ready to give up the rights I have to live life the way I want to live? <clears throat> am I ready to do that? Yes. If you're a believer in Christ, I am asking you the question the same way I asked my own self the question when I was getting ready for this message say, are you ready to give up your rights? <clears throat> it would be very easily if we were all together and sit in a, a group of people and just nod your head, be like, of course, amen, yes, I'll give it up. But stop for a second and think about what that means. <clears throat> the pursuits of your life may have to change. The things that you do every day may have to change. The things that you love to participate in or some of the things that you use to cope with the stresses of life may have to change. 
Matt, I'm not really sure if I want to do this. I'm not really sure if <clears throat> this is something, I mean, I, I want to be a disciple, but I, I'm saved and I believe in, the, in God and I'm giving him, my, I'm giving him my heart and I've confessed him and I'm repenting of the way I used to be and I'm, I believe in him. And, but this disciple thing, I'm not sure. I mean, you may have said it in the past, like, yes, I want to be a disciple, but the question is, are you ready to give up your rights to live selfishly the way you want to live? Well, <clears throat> let me think about that. Well, can I just kind of move along and kind of make the decision later? No. This is a requirement of becoming a disciple. It's a requirement. Matt, I didn't see anything that says a requirement. Let's go back and look at Matthew 16, the first line in verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, that word follower is also translated disciple. If any of you wants to be my follower or my disciple, you must, you must give up your own way, take up your cross. And follow me. It's that last line there in your notes. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must. <clears throat> if I could walk right now in front of a mirror and look at my own self and say, Matt, do you want to be a disciple? Yes, that's my answer. And maybe your answer as well. If I could look at myself right here in the mirror and say, are you ready to give up the way you want things to go? Your right to pursue whatever it is you want to just go do. Create your own little world. Create your own happiness. Do you want to do that or do you want to lay the rights to that down? To take up your cross. Do you want to lose those rights and follow Jesus? <clears throat> it is a requirement. No one can answer that question for you. No one can say, come on, man, and you just kind of get talked into it. No, it has to be a decision on your specific end. You as an individual have to decide, am I going to be a disciple? And I want to be a hundred percent transparent. I want to be very clear about what our goal here is at Roots Community Church. <clears throat> our goal here is to obey this command, to preach the gospel, to have people come to know Christ, become born again, become believers and followers of Him, and to make disciples. Our goal here at Roots Community Church is that that seed of faith would be birthed and that your roots would grow deep down directly into a relationship with Christ. In Colossians, it says that those roots would go directly into God's love. And then watch the fruit that is produced <clears throat> from a disciple's life who has said, I am no longer pursuing what I want. I'm going to give God everything. I have no interest as your pastor or as a believer in Christ. I have zero interest in trying to gather 
a group of any size that approaches God, approaches Scripture, approaches Christianity, approaches discipleship with the mindset of, you know what, I think I can probably carve out a little bit of time in my week for Jesus. I think I can, you know, yes, I'll come to service. Yes, I'll be there regularly, once a month, twice a month, every week, whatever it is. But I'm really busy, but I'm going to slide it in. I have no interest in building or teaching or leading a group of people with that perspective on Scripture and discipleship. Why? Because, my friends, if we are trying to just find a way to slip Jesus into our schedule so we can, you know, kind of check off the little list of, well, I read my Bible today, and so that's kind of good, right? I mean, I went to church, and so that's good, right? No, my friend, we're missing it. There is a command for us to become His disciples. If you're somebody who's watching this right now and you say, Matt, you're kind of busting my chops here, man. That's kind of what I do. I'm very busy and I do all these things and I, I do my best to try to figure out a way to wedge God into my schedule. Then, my friend, I don't want you to feel any condemnation from the statement I just said. I want you to look at God's word and do what everyone has to do, including myself, is I don't have to compare my life to other believers or to other churches or to other pastors or ministers. No, what I have to do is compare my life to God's word. And if I am the one in control and finding little slivers of of time that I can wedge him in, then the priority is completely backwards because I'm pursuing what I want. I have not taken up my cross. I have not relinquished the rights that I have. What I have done is said, I want him to be injected somewhere, but I still want to be in control. And if we are going to be disciples of Christ, if we're going to follow the last physical earthly command of Jesus to his disciples and his followers of becoming disciples, then we have a decision to make, and it's a huge one. I can't sugarcoat it for you. I can't just twist it up a little bit and make it a little bit softer. No, my friends, there's a decision point that has to happen. I am thrilled that you're saved My heart rejoices at the fact that you are a believer in Christ. But after that massive event that will impact your eternity, are we ready to go on to what's expected of us every day? Are we ready to be a learner, to be a student, to be a follower of the way that Jesus teaches us to live? And if we are... we can say that we are a disciple of Christ.